Hi, welcome to the Songwriter Diaries. This is a podcast all about picking the brain of every songwriter that you know. So grab a glass of wine and join us. My name is Megan Ellsworth. My co-host is Caroline Stump. This is the Songwriter Diaries. We're all depressed, so let's write a song about it. We've spanned countries now. Yes, we have we're international. Mm-hmm. We're global. It's all we're a global you. podcast. A global international <laughs> podcast. Wow. So you're going to get that Spotify sponsor now. Global yes! podcast. Yes! It's on the line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. My name is Daniel Jacklin. I go by he, him. Um, I am a folk Americana artist. I went through a lot of changes through my teen years from heavy metal to indie to the guy I am now. Um, started playing guitar when I was seven and I got into it because I used to hear my cousin and my older brother play Metallica songs. So my cousin is 10 years older than me and my brother is six years older than me. So then they, when they were practicing Metallica guitar solos, I had my ear to the door and would just go and annoy them. And then I wanted my own guitar and I got the typical cheap acoustic one and it just kind of stuck with me. And then when my brother started getting electric guitars, he would teach me the the chords to, I don't know, Fata Black or Sanitarium or nothing else matters and he would do solos over them. And I think, because I never had anyone to pass down the solos to, I just stuck around with chords. So I started to become a bit of a geek with chords from then. And I think first and foremost, I was always like a player, just a guitar player. And I think for any like young kid, guy or girl or whoever, when they start playing guitar, they think about just nailing that Guns N' Roses riff or that Metallica riff. And it isn't until a few years later where they start thinking about songwriting. And this is exactly what happened to me. Because when I had the acoustic guitar, I thought, well, I can't play all these thrash metal songs. And then I discovered an uh, artist called Dallas Green. He goes by the name City and Colour. And he's oh. from Canada. Yeah, he's like my hands-down favourite. Seen him like three times. Met him and like shook his hand and cried. And he was like, what's your name? And I was like, and I gave him my full name. And he was like, what's your name? I was like, Daniel Ian Jacklin. And he was like, well, nice to meet you, Daniel Ian Jacklin. Um, and he was just a massive inspiration. And I think his inspiration has kind of doubled because when I was nine or 10, when I started to think about writing, I was writing songs, what the subject matter didn't really mean anything to me. He was speaking about heartbreak and love and loss. And I never had any of that at that point. They sounded like cool songs. So that brings it around back around to just wanting to play. And I'd say for a good few years, I would just sit on YouTube watching live videos of him. So it was always from a technical standpoint of learning how to like nail chords. So I think for me, I never went on to like become a producer or get into electric guitars or pedals or anything. So I will always focus on like conveying emotion just through chords and melody and technique. And it was like the finger picking style. And then by age 11, I entered a talent show with a song that I wrote and it was probably terrible looking back at it. But I won that talent show and I thought, oh, okay. And then music teachers started to point out that I already had rhyming schemes and chord progressions and whatnot and it was just something i just learned from so meticulously watching all these like artists on youtube and at that time it was also the height of like boniver's first album jose gonzalez damien rice Ray, like all these like massive acoustic artists folk names that were competing with like huge pop acts at the same time and i just always gravitated towards that and then fast forward a little bit i studied music at every level I know our qualifications aren't all the same, but at like age 14 to 16, I was doing the qualifications then. And then 16 to 18, I was doing those. 
And I was just always, always performing. Whenever I could, I'd just perform. And that's when I started to take gigs seriously. So to kind of bring a point background again, it was always about just playing and somewhat showing off. And then obviously as you start getting in relationships and having heartbreak and whatnot, you start to write your own things. And then it kind of reflects all the influences you had from the past. So I've been going on these cycles. And then I moved to London in 2016 after having a couple of years of gigging around my hometown. It's called Felix, though. It's a little seaside town. It's probably about two hours drive out of London. And I'm there at the moment. I moved back with my folks because of COVID. But I spend a lot of time in London now. Um, just gigging and seeing friends and writing. And after a couple of years of gigging, I just felt ready to move out and just go to the big city that everyone does. And I st- went on a songwriting course. It just opened my eyes to so much more. But back then when I was 20, when, when I was 19, I was just such an indie guy, a skinny jean, van wearing skater dude, trying to play like all the indie bands. And I think for a little while, I thought that was me because it just felt like the right thing to do to like, get big or somewhat make it in inverted comments and I just thought it's not it's not authentic enough because I kind of like parked all those like folky influences and then there was a weird really really weird turn of fate where there we every we had a writing workshop class and the teacher was like go away and write like a folk country song and I was like I could do that that's kind of in my field from so all those so so many years ago I wrote this song called Wine that I went on to release and it just got the best response in that classroom environment from all the weeks before and after I performed that song. And I thought, okay, I got a bit of a flavour for it. And it wasn't for another couple of years where I was in a production class, which I just felt like I was really lacking in, where the production teacher put all the names in a hat and he said, right, we're going to pick it out. And whoever you get, you have to produce that song to literally separate the whole songwriter producer kind of environment. And it was just like a bit of a challenge. And my friend Lewis, who produces my music to this day, picked out my name. And he was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, what song do I want to produce? And I thought, and at this point, I'd had a couple of years at the university thinking, what song I kind of stuck out? What, people, what do people ask for at gigs? What went well at gigs? And he produced it. And then a few months later, we released it. And then that's what kind of dipped my toe into like the country, Americana, folky world. And then that kind of brings me to today where we're friends. And it would be international in 2019, which is really, really sweet. And it was just, I don't know, I, I think I kind of ignored, I, I, don't, I, ne- I never think like about like what I'm meant to do, but I kind of ignored that if that's the case. So when like the song Wine came around, I thought, ah, oh, here I am, this is what I sound like. And again, it was up against the pop world and university was very eclectic and it encouraged all genres of music. But when it came to like careers days, it was all pop, 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 pop. And all my bestest friends are pop guys and they're incredible. They're absolutely incredible. And I just felt like I was trying to compete in the same lane and it's not what mattered really. And I think it kind of limited me for a little while, but I'm just really happy with how I write and how I perform and how things sound like. And it's just a growing thing. And the I'd say 2019 from the January to that March where I went to Nashville was just crazy because in the January I worked at an Americana awards and they bring so many people over from the States. And I was just like a runner and I was getting them drinks and I was like taking them to rehearsals. Oh my God, and it was like, so it's like cool. really cool. 
and all these like John Paul White from Civil Wars was there. Um, Ethan Johns, who's Glenn Johnson, producer's son, was there. Oh, um, Jade Bird, uh, <laughs> Beth Nielsen, Chapman, who's a Nashville writer. Uh, I think how I saw it, whilst I was in the background, I was like, my people, here they are. Like, they, like this is the lane that I need to like impress and compete in. And it was just like a massive eye-opening moment. And I thought, no, don't fall back into the indie thing to impress an in- industry because I felt like if I chased it anymore and then got some sort of like traction with that, I think I'd always feel like I was missing out on ever trying the folky thing. So I'm so glad I did. So I had that and I met Beth Nielsen Chapman which gave me a, song, a lot of songwriting advice. And the main thing, and it links to the song we're going to talk about at the end, she said something so simple, it sounds like so easy to think about now, but she was like, when you're writing lyrics, find a way to say you love someone or miss someone without using those words. And she was like, for example, say like you come across a hair clip that was left behind after a relationship was end- like ended. And I wrote a lyric. So the uh, relationship I was in, there were, there were two occasions where we split. And now it's done, done. And uh, the first time around, I wrote a lyric and it said, um, I found a hair clip that would hold that hair of yours. I'd want to shout about it in, in terms of it like being in the way and being on like in my room. And then, it, so I said, I found a hair clip that would hold that hair of yours, want to shout about it, but now I'm smiling at the floor. Um, the butterflies arrived as I held it in my hand. I could have cried like I found gold in the sand. And I thought like, just those like little bits of advice can just like just make explosions when it comes to lyric writing if you think yeah. right i can't say i miss you i can't say i love you so i think that's where a lot of like imagery starts coming out yeah. and i think that's just where i started to really hit the nail on the head that year so then to go to nashville and have a little bit of that knowledge and confidence in myself to go out there into such like a huge well it is a small town but I was listening to the Jules uh, podcast uh, this morning. She was like, it's like the biggest small town. Yeah. And um, yeah, and it, I think on paper, it's really intimidating. But once I was there, I was like, it's where I need to be kind of thing. And it's exactly where I need to be. And I just learned so much. And it's like, it's fed into how I write music now, three years down the line. That was a very long answer. I'm sorry. No, I love all of that. that I'm just so like good. absorbing. Yeah, soaking it in. <laughs> So today, what does your songwriting process look like? Like, do you have any rituals that you go to for songwriting? Is it like when it hits you, it hits you? Um, I think the the subject matter of like the breakup I had, um, it was, to be honest, it was like brutal, it was abrupt. Um, It was over text and dealt with over FaceTime because of the pandemic. Um, The reasons given are just personal, so I won't shared that but it was on her side but um yeah i think a lot of my friends said like you're gonna make you're gonna write some amazing songs it's like kind of like cheering you up kind of pat on the back thing yeah and i thought oh yeah maybe i'm gonna write some songs and then it, at first it became a pressure because then all my songwriting friends around me thought like this is dan's time to shine yeah but i was like well, i don't want to take advantage of that if it happens it happens if it doesn't it doesn't and I'd always say I'm first and foremost a guitarist. Uh, so I'd always just be noodling. So I think nine times out of 10, a song starts with a guitar noodle or a little chord progression or, yeah, I think, yeah. So on a, from a purely original um, standpoint, 
it'll be guitar ideas and the lyric ideas will be me spinning everyday phrases or hearing a song and think, oh, well, I could say it in this way. Um, and I think with this particular subject matter of the breakup, I have this, I have this notes in my notes app, believe it or not, not my calendar or email, but um, <laughs> on my notes app where I just free write about that and then I've kind of cherry-picked little pockets and it could be two lines, eight lines, a whole song that are just hidden in there and then it's become like the song we're going to speak about later, Dear Stranger, or the song before that, Better Days. And I just kind of, other than that subject matter, it is kind of one at a time, sit down thinking, I want to write a song today. Like, I think it's such a gift to be able to sit down and write a song. It takes time to exercise that muscle and get that strong, but you're still writing in them. And it's like the whole thing you guys spoke about in the previous podcast about like having that clear water running and things like that. And I just thought, let that water run, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, So as far as it goes in terms of like rituals and process, and then when a song starts to come together, I immediately imagine what it's like live. So I find myself standing up quite a lot, like in this, um, kind of time when my, I'm living with my parents when they're out I'll be stood in my living room and I'll be pitching in an audience not in a sense that like this song is going to do this to please these people it's just like this is what the finished product is going to feel like because I came from such a performing background I just I always see that end goal not in the terms of like a challenge or anything or like a hurdle I just see something to like aim towards but it always it does always start with me to sat down noodling away until I start standing up and picturing it and I think it just takes a song to a new level and during that pandemic time I wrote so many songs about that breakup and then I specifically booked a gig to road test these songs and it kind of fulfilled all those kind of like scenarios in my head where I'd be playing in front of an audience and I think one of the best things about songwriting is that you get to control the mood of a room in a gig um, environment you have you have control of it through chords, tone, lyrics, everything. Whether that's you and guitar, you and a whole band. So it's just I kind of. Some people might just want to like finish this one idea before they even think about the whole scope of it. But it, the scope of it appears like within that day that I'm writing it. Mm. Yeah, wow. I really like that. Like the idea of controlling the mood of a room. Yeah, I I'm one of those people I don't think about live performance like i'm just like i'm here okay. to process emotions and just like get it out somehow and that's the avenue i choose most of the time mm-hmm. so it's interesting hearing so many different perspectives of like no i'm i'm playing <laughs> a show right now in my bedroom yeah. oh, and i sure, think that's yeah. a beautiful idea like that's mm. awesome I, I think it also stems from like you know when you're like a kid and you find yourself choking up at a song but you don't understand why but I remember watching Toy Story 2 and when that, like, When She Loved Me montage comes up. Oh, uh, like, my favourite songs of all time. Oh, my God. Yeah. Beautiful, right? And, like, when you go back and listen to it as an adult, you're like, oh, my God, like, why is this on a Pixar film? You should be, like, like yeah. it's, it's incredible. Yeah. And But I think even remember then I, like, would find that emotional. Even, like, film scores, like, the swells of orchestras and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. And I think I never, like... I never did like any psychology lessons. I understand like the effect of an E minor or what, anything like that. But it's like, I think you, when you start to write those songs, you become a, become a bit aware of 
what that's actually doing, whether you're playing an augmented minor chord or progression. And yeah, I think credit needs to go to more credit needs to go to the listener. What's a lot of, there's a lot of like songs that recycle like similar chord progressions, like the listeners know and they can feel it. And I, I'm very like cautious of what chords I'm using to maybe spin that or like create surprises in the songs. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's yeah. cool. So you were saying like you really come from a performance background and mm. so what would you consider yourself more of a songwriter or more of like a performing artist or a mix between the two? Um, I think if you asked me that same question five or six years ago, just be performer because like five or six years ago, I was doing a lot of covers and it was about the spectacle of performing. So in Ipswich, which is like the main town, it's like a 20-minute drive from Felix to where I am now, where I used to gig at the same venue every Thursday. It was an open mic, and they had, like, guest musicians. And I used to do mashups. I used to do, like, Taylor Swift and Michael Jackson mashups. Michael Jackson controversial, I know. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but it was back then. Um, but, yeah, I used to do mashups of just, like, really, really popular household songs, and that was just my thing. And I almost went down one avenue because two scouts from The Voice were at this venue once. So the primetime channel ITV that screened The Voice, they just sent out scouts to all these tiny towns around the UK and just started like sending, sending out their fish hooks to reel them in. And it was like a pub that was uh, full of regulars. So they have like really two trendy people in from London. You're like, who are they? Yeah. <laughs> it was an avenue that almost went down. So it could have, it could have become this whole performing thing. And then I kind of started growing out of it. And my friends would be like, can you just play a full song? Like you just like, you get to the best part of shake it off. And then it turns into the way you make me feel or Michael Jackson, like just chill, like just play a whole song. And I was like, well, I could give my own songs a go. And then I would do my own songs. And then it would like make people cry or dance or, clap or come and pat me on the back afterwards i was like oh maybe it's okay and so i think easing into that going to london going to uni and learning learning songwriting it was definitely they just became hand in hand because i had that performing experience but i could apply it to my own music so what are your favorite and least favorite things about the music scene in london ah i was excited for this question and i advise people on what I'm about to say uh, a lot when they go to London. I think it's when everyone wants to go to London, there's like, there's a huge scene in Manchester that I'm yet to be a part of and Liverpool and Leeds and up in Edinburgh and everywhere, Glasgow. But like London is where it's at and all like the musos and music industry people be like, get your London shows in, blah, blah, blah. So when I came, I thought, I'm going to do London shows and the rooms are going to be packed and I'm just going to play to 200 to 500 people every night, whatever day of the week it is. You go, <laughs> you're like, uh, it's not the case. And back, back in 2016, a lot of venues were closing down just because like rent was crazy high and there were a lot of developers, noise complaints and whatnot. So I came and it was quite hard to get gigs. And what that creates is a lot of cowboys that want to just fill out any venue and it created a lot of like nights for me where I was literally just vocals and guitar doing my folky thing. And I'd be on a lineup with a punk band, a reggae band, and a pop act all playing to track. 
and it was just completely through the night and there were a lot unpaid and they'd like like really like pedal the whole exposure thing and they want you to bring 15 friends and it was just hard to get those same 15 friends along that same week kind of thing and but I was determined to do it and the first year I was here 20 uh, 2016 into 2017 i i think i played something like 65 to 70 gigs around london central a bit further out and even a bit further out and they were a mixture of cool venues terrible venues and then pubs where no one was listening and i think i just really had to kind of just get through that just become a better player grab people's attention and it was kind of like a cathartic thing just to purely become a better player and compete and there used to be a good open mic scene. But the whole thing about the Cowboys is that it become your gig. I, I didn't believe it then, but your gigs become disposable if you're on a lineup that just doesn't have any kind of like consistency or relevance. Because on a lot of those nights, you'd have the friends of the punk band come and mosh for a little bit. Then it'd be a friends of the reggae band come and have a dance. And then it'd be friends of the folky bit never be out having a cigarette because it's just a quiet acoustic guy and it was just it was just really hard and then there was other promoters that would say they're not pay to play but they were you had to sell a certain amount of tickets before you got like pennies out of that ticket so like for instance a ticket would be 10 pounds and after you sell 15 you will start making 20 percent off that so i have to sell 15 and if i just sell two more i've made four pounds and <laughs> yeah. it's it's and you think well i'm gonna do these london gigs and like i think it really distorts like the whole social media thing because i'd post these gigs and promote them online and i go home i'd be like you're really busy in london playing all these shows because it's a picture of me on stage but what's really happening is that these bands that aren't relevant to what i'm doing or relevant to what they're doing it's good it's gonna annoy each artist really and it just kind of really throws these nights out but for the promoter they're getting paid a lot of cash just to fill out three hours worth of music um mm. so my fit but on the other hand my favorite thing on that it creates a retaliation because for, i think for every negative there's a positive where people are sick of it and put on their own nights mm. so i think in the last couple of years i've seen a lot of writers rounds come up i've seen a lot of folky nights come up i've seen small venues or even like cozy I don't know really like warehouses or big houses host these like smaller events and i just started getting into those and really like fall in love with them but there's this venue that i'm really excited to play i've played there before i'm doing a headline gig on the 2nd of march so it's literally in a few weeks oh and it's quite a staple venue for people like climbing the ladder it's a big room to play and the promoter there is just the coolest and nicest guy like he he'll take his chances on a new artist and he won't bug you like, how many people can you bring? How much money are you going to put behind my bar? It's just like, can you play? The songs are great. Can you do a 45-minute set? Cool. And they pay you a little bit, give you a bit of food. And it's just a beautiful room. So it's like a good environment to invite industry people down if you're at a stage where, you invite, where you're talking to industry people. I hate to say it as an aesthetic thing, but it's, it's great on the socials if you want to carry on that kind of line. Um so yeah, there are there are really nice pockets in London that are wonderful to play. And then any artist that is like just gets just got signed or got a publishing deal or book an agent, there's so many venues that you climb. So it's like a small one called the Waiting Room, and then there's just like 150 cap. And then there's another one called O'Meara, which is 300 cap. 
and then you start hitting like the little O2 ones, which are like a thousand cap. And there's like this like ladder all within one city, and it's just really, really cool and encouraging because you see friends climb that ladder and you think it's possible. So I encourage people to go to London, but just be aware of those cowboys that are just kind of profiting off you and not making relevant nights because it's not it's not nice for the audience either yeah because if they're just swinging by which you get a lot of in london which is very very fortunate thing people that swing by if they go on i don't like this punk band so i'm not into punk see you later but i really like folk music but they don't know that the guy third is a punk uh, a folky guy it's just yeah it's hard it it kind of wasted time in retrospect but um that's my early bugbear, but I managed to kind of shake that off and just make connections and just play more relevant nights in London. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And how do you go about booking those shows? Like, do you find a venue that you like and find a contact? Or is it just random how you come across um, At the moment, I think in the pandemic world, a lot was going on online and a lot of promoters or venues were hosting live streams with artists that they had regularly and i kind of just reverse engineered that started getting in touch with more people so all at nine times out of ten it starts with an email and there's some really cool people there's like a tiny little pub called gladstone arms and it holds probably like the main room probably holds about 50 60 people and it's like really really cozy and i just love playing there and it's really attentive and then that just kind of like then that gives him like a whole like bank of eyes that he can just kind of rotate and like combine and again and that makes relevant um lineups um and then you just keep those contacts and then nine times out of ten they're looking after other venues what i find in london is that venues or bars will outsource promoters to find their music for them we're like right we want a rock night then we want like a dance music night then maybe on sundays we can have like an afternoon where we have folk people and i'm like i can do that and then it happens so yeah i just have confidence and just i think have the whole kind of like motto that the worst answer is no that's it like or or not be or not getting replied to and you get over that and you move on to the next person yeah Yeah. um so you've released several singles um yeah yeah what was what's your like promotion process when you're releasing music? Um, I'm very much about like displaying like the process of recording it. I think the song kind of serves itself to see that it's being recorded by live instruments. It sounds like this like crazy rare thing that live instruments get recorded, but I generally think it's going that way. Cause like there's so many DAWs programming and sampling and whatnot. And I just love micing up a guitar, micing up a live drum kit. And I just like to display that. So me and Lewis have a really good relationship and he has his own little studio space. So I'll always set up a camera and then edit that into videos or montages. And that worked really well for my single Better Days last year. But to be honest, I'm still trying to navigate the whole TikTok streaming world. I think my... I don't understand TikTok at all. I mean, I'm on it all the time, but... For the benefit of the tape, Caroline's eyes just rolled all the way back to the UK. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god i just hate i mean it's a love hate social media mm. i love yeah. to consume it but then when it comes to like promoting right. stuff i'm like i hate self-promotion it, but, it kind yeah. of yeah it occurs to you that you're like wow i need to post this like 
once a day, blah, 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 blah. And I think for me, like when my videos do well, it's never a measure that I like cry myself to sleep over. But like the videos that do well are videos of me just playing, like just sitting there and playing, whether I'm singing or not, it's just playing. And then the montages and the like the more professionally shot stuff does all right. But I think it's all about like authenticity and the whole TikTok thing is crazy. I think a lot of people are like, a slave to it and i've given it and i've tried like a few videos but i just don't i don't get it i don't feel like i've hit crazy milestones in streaming or in, like instagram interaction and that's okay because i'm happy with the songs i'm writing and i i have confidence that i'll reach the right people yeah yeah i'm like yeah. interaction yeah <laughs> yeah and it's I'm just, like i just post and hope somebody sees it <laughs> like yeah. cool I, I think it's a good thing. That's healthy, like not to fret over those kind of things. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like the whole promotion thing is kind of a bit of a love-hate thing because you want to get the music out, you want to reach the right people. But I think my, and our world actually, uh, with like the folky stuff, is that I think a lot of the audiences have those same attitudes to social media, but at some point they're going to be on social media. You need to tell them that you're, a musician of a certain genre, type, style, whatever. And then that's when you start growing audiences because then hopefully, fingers crossed, you get those audiences that like put their phones away or don't need to document everything. But you need to reach them somehow and flyering and just calling out to people in the street scares people these days. So um, <laughs> yeah. it's just, um, it's a tricky one. I, I enjoy it to an extent, but it's hard. And I don't fret too much about streaming like of course anyone else would like more streams but i'm proud of the songs and it's gave me radio support so i feel like the promotion's doing something <laughs> yeah yeah definitely yeah so we've reached the final question this <sighs> is coming out quick scary oh, sorry, sorry. i know we could talk to you forever ever well we could just listen to you talk forever that's true. <laughs> i feel like I, the, of the time i'm just listening to daniel's wisdom like uh-huh uh-huh yes. <laughs> okay final uh, thank question. you very much <laughs> why do you write songs oh i think it generally links back to the control thing and i think on a much deeper level in all uh, like my friend groups or like work settings or school settings, I've always been like the clown. And I get it to a certain level where a teacher tells me off I don't get sent outside kind of thing. I was that cheeky guy. And then I think songs just help me articulate the more sensitive and quieter sides of me, but loudly because it's got a riff or a melody underneath it. And it just kind of... It was just a way for me to articulate what was going on in my head at any point in my life. And I think that's what kind of, only amongst my friends, but they're like, oh my God, you've written this deep song, but when you're not around, you're going, <laughs> make a silly joke. Um, but yeah, if, I think to put it short, it's just to literally articulate things that I don't think I could through speech. Yeah. That's yeah. so interesting to think about like, the quieter parts of yourself, making them louder through your songwriting. That is so yeah, cool. yeah. Someone write that down. Thought... Write it down. <laughs> yeah. Quote. In my notes exactly. app. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I just I think get the subject matter of like my songs at the moment, especially like making use of that kind of whole 
motto or ethos and it's just really nice it's it's therapeutic um it's just i think it helps anyone really and i think my i think um, a link is very slightly to the tiktok thing what i find is that you get snippets of songs and i think people fret over doing the best part of the song or doing the chorus and i've even found myself i'm doing a chorus i'm like oh it's over a minute so i need to like edit this part of the song to get to that payoff oh, of true. like the rhyming scheme or the the concept of the song and i'm like slapping my wrist and going, no don't do that like let it be what it is mm-hmm. so i think like with like the show i have coming up it's very nice and rewarding to think that i get to get through that whole three four minutes of the song to get the whole articulation of the quiet sides about me but loudly through yeah. music um i get i get to do the whole thing and it's just um it's an it's like a healthy challenge to be able to do that, and it's just really nice. I, I I'm just I don't know. There's not a much else that I feel like I'm good at. So yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! Yeah. What a great that was a great answer. Thank you very much. Um, so tell us a little bit about the song that we're gonna play. Dear stranger. And, uh, yeah. Dear stranger. Dear stranger. So, Dear Stranger is about, um, went a bit Australian then. Um, (laughs) It was, so I never tried to get too like pragmatic about songwriting. Like I loved the songwriting course I was on and I 100% wouldn't be the songwriter I am without it. But I very much agree with the whole kind of pretense of it's tools and not rules. So you can keep them in your back pocket or you can reject it and do something else to flip it because it could still come out with a good song. But with the whole like Beth Nielsen Chapman thing, the whole find a song, say you don't miss, you say you miss something about using those words. I used her example of like the hair clip and I thought, let's go one step further. During this breakup, I was kind of like, at this point I was letting bygones be bygones and just accepting that she is going to go on to meet someone. And there's so many ways to say that you made me feel like this and it made me feel this way and this was amazing. And I think when I reflect about relationships, so many of like the positives outweighed the negatives. And I thought, how do I word this cleverly? And at this point, I hadn't heard if she was in a relationship or not. So I was like, why don't I write a letter to that person who doesn't exist in our world yet? And I thought, okay, let's go one step further. So in like my notes app, I wrote, dear stranger, this is how I felt when she was mine. And I did that three times and I just filled the gaps and it made DA sections. And I probably wrote about six, and then I whittled it that, that down to three. And it carried the whole challenge, not saying I miss you. And it was just basically telling the stranger how lucky they are, because that's the only thing I know about them, because they're a stranger. Right? And I was like, oh, okay, thank you. that's a good concept. Now let's go and make it. Um, that was it. And like, it's a challenge because you you don't know what that person looks like, what their own values are and who they're going to be like and if they're going to be good for that person. But what I do know is that the person I was with is going to be good to them. And it was just about that. And I, I didn't want obviously it's about my experience with that person, but it was kind of dressing like this is how it's going to be. It was in like this is how everything is going to be, not like this is how it was for me. But yeah, it carries that parallel. Um, but yeah, dear stranger, I'm really, I, I am really, really proud of it. After not in our good sense, but I'm kind of thinking like, 
I wrote that. And I, the whole like promotion thing is that I got to a point where, especially during, especially during the pandemic, it was hard to navigate how to take, like where to take this whole music thing and if it's going to pan out. And I just started getting in touch with more radio DJs with the whole attitude of worst answer is no. And there's a guy called Matt Spracklin and there's a radio station called Absolute Radio Country. And he was really connected with those Americana awards that I started the podcast about. So it all kind of came full circle. And I was like, I remember him and he has amazing hair. I'll send you his Instagram profile. This is crazy. Beard. <laughs> so he was really memorable. And I first sent him better days, the song before that, but then dear stranger, he was like, damn, I'm going to play this. And he played it like two or three times over that weekend. And he like played me after Casey Musgraves. And it was like, what the hell? It was because like, normally he has like a new music section, but it was like, it was just in his like main show. And it was, I was at work. I was slinging chickens into fridges. And, <laughs> um, and then my dad was like, I've recorded the clip from the radio. And I was like, oh God, I went on break, listened to it. And then just choked up in like the, like the locker room. And I was like, oh my God, like it's, it's starting to have an impact. It was just like a massive like weight off my shoulders. Yeah. And like I'd, at this point, I'd, I'm, past the relationship and I've moved on but it's just I don't know it's just like a little pocket it's like a time capsule that song yeah definitely yeah be a stranger you don't know how much your life is gonna change When she walks in and you learn her name You learn her wit and it'll make your day And she'll reach out and remove the rain She'll reintroduce the sunlight to your eyes That's how it felt when she Okay. 